You can turn with me this morning to Isaiah chapter 5. It's a blessing to have Ben Stolzfus from the Peckway congregation here with us this morning. He is uh, going to be sharing his message from our circuit preaching plans, and uh, we are looking forward to hearing from him this morning. So I'm reading a few verses here in preparation for the message. Isaiah chapter 5, I'd like to read verses 11 to 23. Starting in verse 11 of Isaiah 5. Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may continue, that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night, till wine inflame them. And the harp and the vial and the tabret and the pipe and wine are in their feasts, but they regard not the work of the Lord, neither consider the operation of his hands. Therefore my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge, and their honorable men are famished, and their multitude dried up for thirst. Therefore hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure, and their glory and their multitude and their pump, and he that rejoiceth shall descend into it. And the mean man shall be brought down, and the mighty man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness. Then shall the lambs feed after their manner, and the waste places of the fat ones shall strangers eat. Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as it were with a cart rope, that say, let them make speed and hasten his work, that we may see it, and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come, that we may know it. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. I believe at the time the scripture was written, it was very relevant. And I believe as we look about us today, the scripture is maybe even more relevant than it was then. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for your blessings, many blessings, your presence here with us, and for being able to come together and to worship you together this morning. We pray for Brother Ben as he preaches the message. We ask, Lord, that you would anoint his lips, and may he share what you have laid on his heart. Would you open our hearts, Father, to hear what you have for each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Good morning. Greetings in Jesus' name. It's good to be here at Mine Road. I was thinking about it this morning. You know, for as much as our people interacted uh, 50 years ago, uh, we don't do so much of it anymore. But it's good to be here. It's good to 
worship with you. <clears throat> this message is uh, primarily topical, um, taken, the title taken out of verse um, 20. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. The German car, Volkswagen, introduced its Type 1 car in 1938. The Type 1 became affectionately known as the VW Beetle or the VW Bug because of its iconic shape and changed very little for decades. While other car companies continued to revise the exterior of their cars, the Beetle's upgrades were primarily internal. The never-changing shape of the Beetle became its marketing charm. There's something to be said about staying the same while everything around you is changing. That's actually what God wanted for his people. He created a unique and distinct people, a nation that was to walk according to his never-changing statues. Israel's constancy was to set the nation apart from the always changing nations of the world. The constancy of holiness, set-apartness, uniqueness is to characterize us today also. So does your life change with the ebb and flow of the world standards? Or does it stay constant with a devoted effort to continuously align yourself with the original? Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. Now, the word woe is a term of judgment. Whenever the prophets and Jesus used this word, it was to pronounce a sorrow, a sorrowful and awful object or towards this person. At the final judgment for those who receive this pronouncement on their lives, it will be horrible. Woe is not something, it's not a word that we want directed toward, toward us or sentenced with. There's, there's a number of them listed in the passage that Marcus read for us. But in verse 20, and again, some more in surrounding verses, we have those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The word woe is a literal transliteration in the Hebrew. In other words, I learned as I studied this word that it's an expression that sounds the same in Hebrew, English, and any other language, a little like the word hallelujah. Woe. This word woe is also known as an 
onomatopoeia. And I either forgot what onomatopoeias were or I never learned them. Um, but it's when the formation of a word imitates the natural sound associated with the object or action involved. So when the word woe is uttered by God, by the prophets, and by us, consider saying it with a deep, painful wailing. Woe. And so God, Isaiah, and the translators use this word to call our attention to something that is really, really bad and wrong. Woe is an explanation of pain and grief. And as our culture drifts farther and farther from its biblical moorings, we see more and more truth of Isaiah's proclamation here and how Marcus said it. It was a relevant way to, to describe the condition of, of God's people here in Isaiah. Maybe just as relevant or more relevant in 2022. Faithful prophets used this word, and Jesus did also. Now, it's generally not enjoyable or fun to be the one who must pronounce a woe on folks. No one wants to hear bad news. When you, when you think of bad news or think of something as a woe pronounced, how, how, do, you, how, do, you, how do you define or determine bad news? Even bad news, when it's true and accurate, sh should that be viewed as, as something bad coming to us? Often it comes with, uh, you know, some uncomfortableness, uh, grief or, or sorrow. But news is generally, bad news is generally not something that one wants to hear about themselves. None of us wanted to hear that, you know, brother or sister had cancer, has cancer. Uh, none of us liked the idea of Floyd needing a surgery or Matt having a heart attack. And true, not all bad news, not all bad news needs to be told. Probably some of it is, is better left unsaid. But when bad news can spare the hearer much greater grief, it's actually good news. It's appropriate to hear bad news. Examples abound in our natural realm. Uh, your collar is doubled up, or your account is overdrawn in the bank. Your cows are out, you have appendicitis, or your house is on fire. We don't like hearing them, but it's really, really nice that somebody tells you your collar needs to be straightened out. In the spiritual realm, what kind of news is it that the believer is expected, even required, to bear? Are there instances, instances when you as a follower of Jesus should say something that, yes, is unwelcome, painful? Yeah, sometimes we're called to do that, aren't we? Bad news. By definition, the gospel is good news. 
it's good for us to hear it. When we think of the many glorious themes in the scriptures, uh, you think of forgiveness of sin, you think of peace and uncertainty, you think about being adopted into God's family when you were outside of it, you think about fellowship with Jesus, you think about eternal life, heaven. What news could be better? This is, this is good news. Yet, not everyone considers the Bible's message to be good news. Some reject it as bad news because, well, they choose not to believe it. Many consider it bad news because it contains elements they don't like to hear, such as repentance, surrender, cross-bearing, forgiving others, self-denial. Yeah, some of those are hard things to embrace. Some are grieved because the good news brings conviction. Yes, condemnation. It convicts them of sin, of the lifestyle they're in. And just the just the desire to be left alone. Don't remind me of what's wrong in my life. Reactions to God and his followers who are bearing forth the good news varies. Some turn away sorrowful. Jesus had that occur to him when he would give what the, his hearers deemed as bad news. Some stopped their ears even today, as they did then. Some mock. Some physically attack the messenger. John the Baptist, Jesus, Stephen, the Apostle Paul, early Anabaptist martyrs, and countless others gave their lives for bearing what was then viewed as, as bad news. You see, part of the issue of being willing to stick, stick one's neck out and offer an honest plea to truth is that one's, one's neck is, is at risk of being chopped off like it was for John the Baptist when he reminded that evil, sinful Herodias that she was living in adultery. She didn't want to hear it. And so she gets rid of the messenger. Yes, that still is happening today. Um, I don't read of much beheading happening in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, but many who really don't want to hear truth are finding other ways to no longer hear the truth. This kind of opposition in today's, in today's society is often branded such as hate speech, intolerance, you don't like me, Jesus loves the sinner, and the list could go on. And because of that, not enjoying such reactions, plenty of today's prophets and preachers and teachers, God's messengers, are today preaching a partial gospel.
gospel message. They teach remission without repentance. They teach faith without works. They teach a crown without a cross. A living sacrifice with no sacrifice. Not, I have confidence that the congregation here at Mine Road, this is not the kind of preaching you have coming across your pulpits. I, be, I believe, I, I know your preacher's good enough that I'm confident they take the word of God seriously and they don't preach just what people want to hear. And I encourage you, if that is your experience, that you thank the Lord for that very often. That's a privilege to be grateful for. And once in a while, thank them for it. Not nearly all church attenders today have this kind of gift every Lord's Day morning. Rather, they speak, preachers speak to please the hearers, itching ears, just like Ahab's 400 rubber stamp prophets. I'd like for us to turn to 1 Kings chapter 22. Rubber stamp prophets. 1 Kings 22. The rare Micaiah here in this chapter who has the courage to tell the truth is really considered an oddity today. As he was then. Men such as him become target for negative reactions. In verse 8, Ahab said, I hate him, for he doth not prophesy, for he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. Was that true? Was it true that he was prophesying evil? No. It was news he didn't want to hear, but it was news he really needed to hear. Further, the 400 other prophets pressure Micaiah to say what he want to hear. Let thy word, I pray thee, be like the word of one of them, and speak that which is good. Itching ears. I ask, what good is a prophet who says what his peers like him to say? Not much prophetic in there, is there? There's not much prophecy there. He is like a doctor who cannot and will not give the needed accurate news, even if it feels like bad news. A good doctor and a good prophet says what the patient needs to hear. Whether it's considered good news or bad news, he says what's accurate. When someone is on a deadly path, physically we're talking about here, well, you can apply it spiritually also. When someone is on a deadly path, it is very good for him to hear even bad news or negative news. And it's also very good of the messenger to give him the accurate news. It's bad for him to be spared. 
what appears to be bad news. No matter what pressure he is under, the true prophet of the Lord concurs with Micaiah. As he responds to these 400 rubber stampers in 1 Kings 22, verse 14, and Micaiah said, As the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. That's the prophet's job. And it's also the job and responsibility of the Mine Road Church and its brotherhood to simply be messengers of the gospel. At the end of the day, we all know it's really good news. It's good for us to hear it. Whether it's received, perceived, or accepted, as good news or bad news. It's what we need to hear. Yes, there's always a place for tact. There's always a place for speaking the right words at the right moment. Always God's good Holy Spirit influences and directs us. The news should always be shared lovingly and carefully. But let us never yield to the pressure of making people feel comfortable in their sin, in their wrong actions, in what is harmful for them. So when someone asks you a question such as, what does your church teach about divorce and remarriage? Or what do your folks, what do you folks believe about transgender, homosexual lives, lifestyles? What about suicide, someone who takes his own life? I believe, I'm convinced we need to turn to the scriptures for our reference, for our direction, for our responses. Good news, or news, let me say it this way, news that gives false hope is really bad news. As bad and as dark as it gets for earth inhabitants, it is really good of God to give us direction, insight, and understanding of his will for us. True, we don't always get it and do it exactly right. I think of Jonah. Jonah was kind of like a bad news evangelist as he uh, went to Nineveh and started preaching even though he didn't want to go. And I, I think his message may have been a little uh, negative. He, as you read the text, you read the story of, of, of Jonah and his time in Nineveh, he, he really didn't want to be there. He didn't love these people much. And he, it feels to me like he wanted to tell them about condemnation and judgment coming. That was his message. He wasn't real interested in sharing the good news of forgiveness and mercy and that God is long-suffering and loves his people. But to his credit, he went. 
And to his credit, by God's grace and his work and his, and his what, it, what it seems like to me is as a less than full gospel, people repented. They turned to God. And I don't think he responded the best. I think as God's people, our need, our news to, to, to the lost and the dying and those who, who need direction in their lives, yes, it, it needs to be just what God says. Repentance was important for Nineveh. But let's couple our message with, with hope. Let's couple our message with turning to Jesus. That's the beauty of, of the full gospel. It's like a good doctor. It awakens the individual to, its, to, to, what, to the need in his, in, his, in his physical body and then points him towards a cure. Humanity has always been adept at confusing evil with good. We saw that happen in the garden with our first parents, Adam and Eve. If evil were not made to appear good, then there would be no such thing as temptation. Second Corinthians 11, verse 13 and 14 says, For such are false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. Actually, they look really good. And no marvel for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. So the Bible says that Satan himself disguises himself as someone very, very good, an angel of light. If Satan were to portray himself as this dark, devilish, being with horns, we, we probably wouldn't be too attracted to his wiles and temptations. He wouldn't be appealing or enticing to us at all. The Bible says he transforms himself into something that looks good. Someone has said a wrong deed is right if the majority of, be, of people declare it not to be wrong. A wrong deed is right if the majority of people declare it not to be wrong. You see, they don't have the premise of right and wrong. History clearly shows us that the morality of man without God continually shifts away from his principles. History clearly shows us that the morality of man without God continually shifts away from him and his principles. I, I think we should be honest about observing our lives and ask ourselves, are we moving closer to God and his word? Or are we drifting away from it? This morning, um, well, the past two nights, we, we hosted some youth from traveling from Indiana at our house, at our, in our carriage house apartment. 
They were there for two nights, and this morning they left for Indiana about the same time we left to come to Mine Road, spending their Lord's Day on the road because, you know, we got to get back. And I'm asking myself, or I'm asking ourselves, so what happened here? I don't think 50 years ago that would have been very common among our people to spend the Lord's Day away from the gathering of his people. And the Bible is very clear. So much the more as ye see the day approaching, that's where you need to be. I don't care how you dice it, how you slice it. Something's not good here. And I think we should find courageous, redemptive, and compelling ways to utter a woe. In my short lifetime, just around 50 plus years, and certainly those of you who are older in this congregation, we've actually lived through an era where society once frowned on divorce and remarriage. Yeah, our society, pagan society. Laws and positions in both general society and the church was against divorce and remarriage. But now, in the same land, mind you, divorce is today accepted. Fornication and adultery is just kind of overlooked. And many, many churches and its preachers have just gone quiet. The Bible says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. God has not changed. His standards have not changed. God says he will bring judgment on those who live in adultery and immorality. And so God's people need to say it just like God, just like he has said it. Two men in a truck, neither of them very bright, were passing through a small town. They came to an overpass with a sign that said, or that read, clearance is 11 foot 3 inches. And so they got out and they measured their rig, and it was 12 foot 4 inches. So it was 13 inches higher than the distance from the road surface to the underside of the overpass. As they climbed back into the cab, one of them asked, so what do you think we should do? Well, the other one, he shifted into gear and he says, there's not a cop in sight. Let's take a chance. Now, that, that seems just ludicrous and stupid. But many people regard God as some kind of cosmic cop whose roles are designed to cramp our style, our lifestyle, and cheat us of, of good times. That's how people regard God and his word and his directives. And so if they get a chance to beat the rap, the cop's not looking, let's do it. You know, the exact we know this, but sometimes I think we forget it. The exact opposite is true. What is really true, that God is a loving, heavenly Father who loves us, died for us, 
And his rules, his standards, his commands are designed to protect us and to give us the best life anyone could hope for. That's the kind of God we have. He's not like some... He's not this man in the sky with a big stick just waiting to pound us. That's not who... That's not the kind... He's a loving and merciful... That's why he gave us this. Anytime we violate God's rules... God's statues, God's will for our lives. We do so at our own peril. Honesty and integrity were once a hallmark of character in our society. Honesty and integrity. It's still so for serious followers of Jesus. But much of our culture, and unfortunately some of this comes closer home than we'd like it to, honesty, integrity has been set aside with, it's okay, it's right, as long as I can get away with it, as long as most people say it's right, as long as I don't get caught. In John Steinbach's book, he has a character saying, if it succeeds, they will not be thought as crooked, but clever. How do we get our values so mixed up? How do we fall in Satan's traps so often? It's because he's disguised himself as an angel of light rather than for the ugly being he actually is. I'd like for you to open your Bibles. To first, or to, I'm sorry, to Romans chapter one. When I was first preparing this message, I was reading through the through Romans for my personal devotions. In chapter one, God gives a very graphic and vivid clarity on what will happen to those who refuse to accept simple truth. told you all to turn there and I didn't get there myself yet. Romans chapter 1. We're going to read verse 18 to 32. Now just imagine yourself reading this for the first time and, and coming away and say, so what, God, what did God just say? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in on righteousness or suppress the truth because that which may be known of God is manifested in them for God hath showed it unto them for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse because that when they knew God they glorified him not as God neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor 
their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their lusts one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. That's a sobering text. I'd like to just mention a few things about the biblical view of gender. Why is it that God clearly says in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. So why did God say that? Why did God say it's awful for a woman to make it appear like she's a man and a man to make it appear like she's a woman? I think this is just a prime example of how the Bible places boundaries between what should, ha- what should be on the males, what should obviously be on males, and what should be obviously on women. I believe this, this clear identity of what is a man and what is a woman should, should be as clear as we can possibly make it. And it should also be a gift that is cherished rather than something that is denied or confused by. To deny the gender God has given you as you entered into life and began breathing air is to deny God who has made you. And thus you're rebelling against an almighty sovereign God. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created him male and female. Created he them. After Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, it says God saw that it was very good. Why are we getting it mixed up? If God saw it was good. I think it... it, I think there should be a woe stated here. It signifies and implies arrogance, pride, revolt, selfishness, and self-indulgence. Whereas accepting what God has ordained speaks of humility, gratitude, submission, and worship. 
How should Christians treat gender-confused folks? Well, I believe God calls us to compassion, love for the lost, for the confused as he today, just as he did back when he walked the earth. Show them grace. Show them the scriptures. Yes, sometimes, quote, woes. Jesus says, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they had fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. They lost direction. Let's also remember that such folks are our fellow men. And that the only thing that separates us is God's divine grace in our lives. You see, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Randy Alcorn has a statement concerning grace that I really like. He says, any concept of grace that makes us feel comfortable sinning is not biblical grace. Any concept of grace that makes us feel more comfortable sinning is not biblical grace. God's grace never encourages us to live in sin. On the contrary, it empowers us to say yes to truth and live outside or above sin. Thank God for grace. Jesus came to take away and forgive sin, and he expects our cooperation as he wants to impute that grace into our lives. Romans 6, verse 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin any live, live any longer therein? It is hellacious error to say that as Christians, you're not supposed to feel guilty when you sin. You are supposed to feel guilty when you sin. You're, you're guilty because you ought to feel guilty because you're guilty. Feeling guilty, otherwise known as maybe being convicted in our sin, is a painful symptom that something's wrong. Something Something doesn't feel right. Okay, when a person gets cancer, often there are symptoms. When Floyd needed a surgery, there was symptoms that drove him to the realization that he needs, needs something needs to be done here. Christ's grace is not spiritual Advil, intended to numb the pain of guilt. Guilt is the warning sign that there's a deadly disease in our lives. And God's grace is the cure. I think it's helpful for me to remember as I relate to sinners, transgender folks, there was a time when I was without God also. You know, after generations of godliness in, in, in our lives, parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents who love God, who love God's word, who actually applied God's word to their lives, you know, after you've had generations of that, I think it's difficult for us sometimes to remember what it'd be like if we didn't have 
that kind of grace in our lives? It's important for me to remember that grace wasn't always in my heritage, in my lineage. Our fathers, I'm told, were barbarians at one time, far from God. Very uncivilized, rough, wicked, immoral. Yeah, that's who my fathers were, your fathers were. And if the Catholic Church hadn't been intentional about sending some missionaries to my people, your people, we may still be in our sins. Thank God for grace. In conclusion, in a generation where morality sways with the wind, may those who follow Christ resolutely place their feet upon the rock that God has given us. Trusting our good Father, trusting his never-changing word, this is going to be our anchor. Yes, this is what will keep us and warn us when the prevailing winds of doctrines overtake many around us. And may the Lord raise up faithful men and women who live and leave testimonies of steadfast faithfulness to the God's word, to the scriptures. May he have rare men and women who are present-day Micaiahs to be an accurate prophet, witness, and light in the moral confusion of our time. Who are willing to say it just as God recorded it and preserved it down through the generations. Let's kneel for prayer. before you this morning thanking you for the grace that came our way thank you for the love that you've that you loved us first I thank you for your written word I thank you for your Holy Spirit as it moves and directs us in our lives and I pray that you would help us to love you to love your word, to love your ways, to love your people. Thank you for the brother here, brotherhood here at Mind Road. Thank you for their testimony of faithfulness. And I pray that you would do a good, mighty work here. I pray, Father, that as we go through the day tomorrow, throughout next week, people would be drawn towards you. Because may our lives be compelling as we witness, as we live, as we work as we interact. I pray that you would help us to be courageous in our day. Help us to love well, even while there's wickedness and sin prevailing around us. We thank you so much for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.